You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. If you're a fan of the Redacted History podcast, be sure to go subscribe to the Redacted History YouTube channel. You can find the link in the description below. We're uploading new videos and new material to the YouTube channel as we speak. Trigger warning. This episode will go in-depth about the violence the native people of Congo have endured. The details are upsetting, to say the least. So take care of yourself. If you need to pause the episode or stop it completely, feel free. Look around your home. How much do you really know about the origin of the items you use every day, like your TVs, cell phone, computer, etc.? Do you know how they were made? or where those materials come from, or what type of labor someone had to put in to make sure that you get those materials? Or is it not that deep? So long as you're about to stream and scroll, it's not that serious, right? I can assure you that for the citizens of the Congo, it goes much deeper than you can imagine. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. This will be a two-part podcast where the first part is a deep dive into the colonization of the Democratic Republic of Congo. We'll explore how one of the wealthiest places on the planet found itself unable to escape exploitation and the greedy grip of Leopold II of Belgium. Lots of things come to mind when people think of Africa. For me, I think of a diverse and beautiful continent. If you're ill-informed, you may only imagine a continent made up of corrupt or poverty-stricken countries, people only living in huts, no water, illiterate, etc. But it's important how much of the continent, not just the Congo, found itself recovering from and in some cases still enduring colonization to this very day in 2023. It all started with the quest for spices, ivory, and gold. The age of exploration led many Europeans to find pathways from Europe to India. If you remember, that's what Christopher Columbus was looking for, allegedly. The Portuguese had been exploring West Africa in search for a path to India that could avoid going through the Ottoman Empire. They set up along the coast whenever possible, but rarely got deeper into the continent themselves. They relied on slave traders more acquainted with the lay of the land to assist in the slave trade. They would bring people from the interior to the ports, where they would then sell them to the Americas. Many European explorers continued on like this for decades. This was because the interior of Africa was a terrifying place to the average European. There were unpredictable terrains and wildlife, diseases that the locals had already built up immunity to, such as malaria, and a fierce native population that was not going to be exploited without a fight. But when the slave trade was made illegal, European countries began to wonder more and more about what else, other than human capital, the continent had to offer. Rumors and whispers around the world told stories about the gold, diamonds, 
ivory in the area that piqued the curiosity of the Western powers who sought to grow their empires and fill their pockets. A few foolish explorers began to venture deeper and deeper into the heart of Africa. One man in particular was Henry Stanley. Henry was born John Rowlands in Wales in 1841 and emigrated to the United States at 18 in 1859. He was abandoned as a child. His mother gave him up as a baby and he never knew his father. He experienced a hard and abusive childhood as a result. One day while running an errand for work, he was presented with the chance to get away from it all and he took it. He was 17 when he left his old life behind and fled to America. There he decided he could be anything. It was here he decided to become Henry Morton Stanley. Not long after his arrival, he found himself fighting in the Civil War. He actually served the Confederate Army and then the Union Army. But after the war, he sought to explore even more far-off places. In his 20s, he embraced exploration and journalism. Out in the world, he could be somebody, see things the average young man his age hadn't. This meant a lot to Stanley, being a man of importance. On the road or at sea, his past didn't matter. He wrote about his travels and reported to the New York Herald back in the United States. He traveled to Spain, Ethiopia, the Ottoman Empire, India. He was everywhere, taking note of everything. In 1871, he began to explore more and more of the African continent, having traveled over 700 miles during one of his expeditions. For reference, that's like walking the entire coastline of California. On his journey, he ran into a fellow explorer, David Livingstone, a man whom many people thought was dead. According to Stanley, this is when he uttered the iconic line, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. In 1874, he went back to Africa again. This time, he was going to explore Africa from one end to the other, east to west. His goal was to map out the waterways and figure out the source of water for the Nile River. By the end of the expedition, his team was cut nearly in half. Had it not been for the Africans he had with him, it surely would have been many more. They survived malaria, crocodiles, and much, much more. A journey that took almost three years to complete. Along the way, Stanley also stepped on any locals that stood in his way. He thought of Africa as unpeopled country and treated it as such. Stanley was also known to embellish. He was always the hero in his own story, but the truth would place him much closer to a villain. Meanwhile, other European nations and explorers also slowly attempted to creep their way into Africa as well during the mid to late 19th century, but it was completely unorganized. Everyone began bickering over everyone else's territories, and Europe was on the verge of war regarding who should get what on a continent that none of them were native to. So they came up with a way to settle these rising conflicts of interests like gentlemen. Otto von Bismarck, the chancellor of Germany, called for a meeting at his home in 1884. Each man was greeted upon arrival. In a great hall, they all settled into their seats around a large table big enough for the 14 nations and all their representatives. In attendance, Austria-Hungary, the International Congo Society representing the interests of King Leopold II of Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Great Britain, Italy, the Netherlands, Ottoman Empire, Portugal, Russia, Spain, Sweden, Norway, and the United States of America. On the wall hung a massive map of the continent of Africa. 
From November 15, 1884 to February 26, 1885, nearly three months, they bickered and debated over how everyone would get what they wanted. The conference was less of a who gets what and more of a how to get what we want without overstepping each other. The desire to conquer Africa was almost entirely economical, with sprinkles of what would later be described as the white man's burden. This is the belief that because white people are the superior, more civilized and intelligent race, they have an obligation to save non-white people from themselves. It is up to white people to convert, organize, and manage people who would otherwise be living a backwards life. But let's be honest, it was mostly about the money. By the end, everyone had a game plan and understood the rules of engagement, and the scramble for Africa was now a little less chaotic. Well, at least on their end. Remember, Africa is not homogenous, even though people often talk about it like it is. The maps may not always show it, but Africa is massive, and today between 1,000 and 2,000 languages are spoken, with around 3,000 tribes calling the continent home. And these numbers were likely even higher prior to the aggressive colonization of the continent. None of the thousands of differences were factored in when the European countries plotted on how to get what they wanted. Not a single African was in attendance. The Sultan of Zanzibar wanted to attend, but none of the European nations respected his authority enough to even remotely consider an invite. The most important guidelines were established at this conference to make sure everyone was staking their claims properly. A country had to have what is referred to as an effective occupation in order for the other countries to recognize their claim. An occupation was only considered effective if there was a treaty in place with the leaders of that area. The flag of the country seeking to occupy was flown, and there had to be a police presence to keep things together by force if needed. Like, what could go wrong with a police force? And the colonized countries would also have to remain neutral in case the respective European nation that was colonizing them ever went to war. The treaties were extremely easy to get. Oftentimes, the European nations would vow to help one African nation with a rival African nation. They would pretty much say whatever needed to be said in order to get them to sign that piece of paper. The leaders of these tribes and nations often did not speak the language of the Europeans. They took the word of the European settlers that the contract covered what was discussed and signed. They would trade with them alcohol, guns, etc. in exchange for a signature. And if any African leaders happened to figure out that they had been cheated, it was already too late. The ink was dry. Any opposition was met with reassurance that this was going to be in the native people's best interest, but their land was already gone. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Between 1885 and 1914, Africa was infested by colonial rule. The continent went from a small percentage of coastal European colonization to being about 90% colonized. Two countries were able to avoid colonization. Ethiopia, who had a strong army and experience with previous colonization attempts, as well as wealth and resources. These things helped them remain prepared against colonization. And Liberia almost remained uncolonized. Sort of. I use the term uncolonized very loosely. 
They may not have been claimed by any particular European entity, but this was only because Liberia was already occupied. During the mid-19th century, the United States needed a place to send some of these freed slaves in their country. In 1816, the American Colonization Society advocated to send newly freed black people back to Africa. There was no real place for them in America, or so they say. The newly freed black people descended from all over Africa, so why not send them back? So they sent them back to what was to be called Liberia, a country created merely out of white Americans' fear of freed black people. But that history is another story for another day. The majority of the original attendees of the Berlin Conference of 1884 never even stepped foot in the places that they wanted so badly to colonize. There were a few factors that made this attempt a little bit different than any previous attempts. Slavery had come to a close, but the slave trade had greatly weakened some of the more densely populated areas. The machine gun was now available for use in battle and would prove fatal compared to previous weaponry. And as far as malaria, there was a medical treatment that came about in the 1890s called quinine. By 1913, France took the majority of West Africa and Madagascar. The British took large portions of Southern and Eastern Africa, in addition to a few territories in the West. Germany walked away with modern-day Namibia and Tanzania. The Portuguese took modern-day Mozambique and Angola. Italy controlled Somalia but failed to colonize Ethiopia. And lastly, Spain took Equatorial Guinea. Seven of the countries from the conference ended up with nothing. Some simply didn't have any real interest but were happy to support the others and benefit from their findings. For the United States, it was probably best to sit this one out. The U.S. was pretty busy at this time. Between 1800 and 1884, when the Berlin Conference began, the country had doubled in size with the Louisiana Purchase. The Civil War had erupted, and now Reconstruction was underway. More and more Americans were expanding west, and President Grover Cleveland had a reputation for being anti-imperialism, which is maybe one of the only things he was good for. But again, another story for another day. The United States did, however, pledge to support the Congo Free State, which was now officially under the control of Leopold II of Belgium. Leopold did not personally attend the conference, but in the end, everyone played right into his hand. He had successfully convinced the other major European powers, despite their reservations, to give him full control over the area. Not Belgium, but Leopold II specifically would control the Congo Free State. He was pleased. Leopold had been strategizing his way to this very moment. He vowed that he would obtain a colony long before the Berlin Conference. A nation couldn't be considered a great one without a colony, in his opinion. And he, similar to our friend Stanley, had a lot to prove. It was hard for Leopold II not to compare himself to the successes of his big cousin, Queen Victoria. Belgium paled in comparison to England both in size and colonial footprint. It was a newer country coming onto the scene in 1830, and Leopold II, at 30 years old in 1865, took the throne. He tried a few times, attempting to establish colonies in Argentina, Brazil, the Philippines, and, and other parts of Asia, but each time he failed. He eventually turned his interests to the Congo. He started laying the groundwork to stake his claim before there were even discussions about a Berlin conference. He convinced everyone that the people of the Congo needed saving and that his interests in the territory were rooted in philanthropy. 
He told everyone he was going to end the black market slave trade in the area, bring Christianity to the natives, and help them build the economy. He whined and dined, networked and flattered whomever he needed to in order to gain support for this endeavor. In 1876, he hosted the Brussels Geographic Conference. There, he dazzled others and persuaded experts and businessmen from all over Europe to establish the International African Association to help move these objectives forward. He would be the head of the organization, of course, and as you may have guessed, despite the name, the association was not actually made up of Africans. The International Africans Association flag would be the very same one to later fly in the Congo Free State. The following year, Stanley resurfaced and reported back on all that he had found during his journey through Africa. He had found the connection between the Nile and the Congo River. He had seen the elephants with their large ivory tusks and learned how to exploit the people there for his own gain. When Stanley returned to Europe from his travels, no other European country was nearly as interested in him or his discoveries as Leopold. Leopold had been following his adventures closely. He wanted to know everything there was to know about the Congo. Stanley had earned himself a reputation as an unsavory character due to his actions on his previous explorations. He also had a reputation for embellishing his achievements on his travels. But this wasn't a deal breaker for Leopold. You see, Stanley wasn't his first pick, but he was in desperate need of someone who could handle the job. The previous people he sent to explore had either died or quit. He invited Stanley over and persuaded him to return to the Congo and help him set up infrastructure that would make trade easier. He agreed to pay Stanley the equivalent of $250,000 a year for the time he spent in Africa. Leopold would spare no expense to get his hands on this magnificent African cake, as he called it. In Stanley's writings, he asserts, quote, only by proving that we are superior to the savages, not only through our power to kill them, but through our entire way of life, can we control them as they are now, in their present stage. It is necessary for their own well-being, even more than ours." Unquote. Leopold communicated his instructions from afar through one man. They kept in contact through this one man, Colonel Maximilian Strauch, a fellow member of the International African Association. He made it clear to Stanley that this trip was not about helping out any Africans. It was about taking control and keeping control. In a letter to Stanley, he writes, quote, It is not a question of Belgian colonies. It is a question of creating a new state, as big as possible, and of running it. It is clearly understood that in this project, there is no question of granting the slightest political power to Negroes. That would be absurd. The white man heads of the stations, retain all power." Unquote. Stanley was tasked with setting up roads, stops along the Congo River for the steamboats, and a railroad. The railroad was built by hand by the native people and was back-breaking work. Many people died in this process. Much of the work they were forced to do was deadly, but we'll go into that more a little later. But that didn't matter to Stanley or Leopold. It was a key piece in establishing trade. In fact, Stanley earned himself the nickname Bula Matari, meaning break stones. And when Stanley became sick, near death actually, and had to come back to Europe, Leopold sent him back to Africa just a few months later, barely giving him time to recover. And while Stanley held up his end of the bargain, Leopold continued strengthening his claim. Leopold sent an ambassador, 
Henry Shelton Stanford to America on its behalf. He was the current United States Minister to Belgium and happy to return home and advocate for Leopold II's work in the Congo. They fell in love with the idea of free trade and a place to maybe send some of the newly free black people. They were on board and were one of the first countries to acknowledge Leopold II's claim. Meanwhile, Leopold convinced France to back him by telling them that if he had to give up the Congo, it would directly go to them. France liked the idea of keeping the territory out of the hands of the British. And truthfully, they were sure Leopold would sink all his money into the Congo. All they had to do was wait. Now, there was another region in the same area that the French would end up claiming and called the Republic of Congo. Very different area, but that is also another story for another day. Germany was skeptical of Leopold's intentions, but they were persuaded by free trade as well, just like the Portuguese and the British. Together, Leopold II and his team led operations that allowed him to tap into the resources of Congo right under the nose of the other European countries. In fact, all of this chatter was one of the catalysts that led up to the Berlin Conference. And like I said before, in the end, Leopold got exactly what he wanted. There were, of course, a few stipulations. The General Act of Berlin was put in place to regulate how Leopold could handle Congo economically. 1. The Congo River Basin was a neutral territory and free trade must be allowed. 2. No slave trading. And 3. The Portuguese would no longer have claims to the waterways. Leopold rolled his eyes at these stipulations but was clever and would figure out a workaround if need be. Now that Leopold had Congo in his hands, the Congo Free State was officially born. From here, his grip would only tighten. His police force of choice was referred to as the Force Publique. The Force Publique was a small army to be reckoned with. Many of the officers were of European descent. Everyone taking orders from them were of African descent, even Congolese in a lot of cases. For the officers, this was a new opportunity in a far-off place to pull rank. For some of the soldiers, this was their opportunity to get paid, but a large number were there by force or coercion. They were required to serve in the force as a form of indentured servitude. Slave traders in the area provided soldiers, and even though Leopold promised to get rid of slavery in the area, he still took them. Children who now had no family or community to turn to were left orphaned. Many were sent to live with missionaries. Some were put to work as young as seven years old. Those who didn't fit in either of the previous categories had a third option. They were sent to camps where they learned how to become members of the force. The force grew and grew, and by the 1900s was made up of over 19,000 men. They were known for their brutality. They weren't simply keeping an eye on things. Their most important job was to make sure that quotas were being met and that everything ran smoothly. Any opposition or defiance was snuffed out using means that were inhumane, to say the least. In 1895, they even hung a British man who they believed was encroaching on the ivory trade. This man went by the name of Charles Stokes. According to the force, he was selling guns to slave traders in exchange for ivory. But the circumstances surrounding his death were fishy, to say the least, and the British government began to suspect something very wrong was going on in the Congo Free State. But ivory was not the only resource that was coveted in the Congo. The Congo had something the West desperately needed to step into the future. Rubber. Right around this time, we see a rise in industrialization in the Western world. Rubber was a growing necessity. The discovery of rubber in the Congo came at the perfect time for Leopold. The Congo was making him plenty of money, but his earnings couldn't always keep up with his spendings. 
Rubber wasn't just used for tires on cars. Bikes were becoming more and more popular as well. Rubber was used for manufacturing. It was used around electrical wire, machinery, and much more. So when rubber trees were discovered to be prevalent in Congo, Leopold saw nothing but dollar signs. Instead of buying rubber from China, there was now a new source. But rubber collection in the Congo was very tricky and not easy at all. It wasn't found in the typical rubber tree. It was in the vines. Sometimes it would take hours or days to find rubber vines. Sometimes people had to climb high into the trees in order to reach these vines, and it was a very long way down. If you can imagine, carefully harvesting rubber from a vine wasn't always the fastest way to meet your quota. If you didn't collect enough rubber, you would be punished. But if you cut the vine and tried to squeeze the rubber out, it would be faster, but it would likely kill the vine, which was an enormous infraction, and you would be punished. If you were caught trying to mix the rubber with dirt to make it seem like more, some officers would make you eat it as punishment. Red rubber, as it would later be known because it was harvested off of the backs and bloodshed of the nearly 47,000 rubber gatherers who were never paid in money, only materials such as salt or cloth. The force publique had in their possession whips known as chicote, a notorious form of punishment. These whips were passed down from the Portuguese who previously occupied the area. Hippo hide was twisted into long strands. These strands were then twisted together to form a whip. Victims were held down and hit with the chicote multiple times, up to 100 if need be. This often resulted in death. Sometimes the children, wives, and other family members were also taken captive as punishment for their family members' rubber harvest. The conditions in these camps, which these people were kept in, were horrific. People often died from disease and famine. The women and children were also subjected to brutal physical and sexual assaults. Soldiers were also instructed to shoot and kill anyone who caused trouble or did not meet their quota, or to shoot and kill the relatives of those that did not meet their quota, or to kill entire villages that refused to work. In fact, there was a whole handbook on the subject. But because bullets were a limited resource, there needed to be proof that the bullet was not wasted or saved for a rebellion. Hands were also cut off the presumed dead as proof that the work was carried out. The hands were sometimes smoked for preservation and placed in large baskets. For every bullet, there needed to be a hand. But sometimes, soldiers did use their bullets against the rules, and in these cases, hands were cut off of the living to make the numbers add up. Hands were also cut off as punishment for those who refused to work. Even the hands of family members could be removed as punishment for the work of an individual. Over time, the atrocities just became a part of everyday life. And for a while, it felt like no one would ever hear the cries of the Congolese people. One of the first people to sound the alarm was George Washington Williams. Williams was a black man who fought for his freedom in the Civil War. He was a man of faith and journeyed to Congo under the best of pretenses. Leopold II advised him not to visit the Congo. It wasn't a good time, he claimed. But he insisted, and when he arrived, he was horrified at what he discovered. Williams felt so passionately that he wrote an open letter to Leopold II directly, and this open letter to Leopold quickly spread. There were 12 detailed points that outlined exactly what was going on in the Congo Free State. It even calls out Henry Stanley by name. A portion of it reads, quote, All the crimes perpetrated in the Congo have been done in your name, and you must answer at the bar of public sentiment for the misgovernment of a people whose lives and fortunes were entrusted to you by the August Conference of Berlin, 1884 to 1885. 
unquote. This letter also serves as a call of action to Belgium and any and everyone who should care about what was happening to the people of the Congo, to do something to stop Leopold's madness. Leopold was livid. A black, who he didn't even want visiting in the first place, had the nerve to air out all of his dirty laundry. Leopold aggressively denied the claims. He stated that hands were cut off because many people had cancer of the hands, and this was a form of treatment. Leopold had done such a good job at manipulating the public up to this point that they believed him. He also assassinated the character of Williams, calling him a liar, an adulterer. Williams died before his name was ever cleared. The missionaries also spoke out. Initially, Leopold just wanted them to instruct the children and raise them up as far away from their native traditions as possible. In some cases, they were even tasked with baptizing children who were near death to help them get into heaven. All of this was going as planned for a while. After all, if Leopold was going to continue to convince people that part of the reason he was in Congo was to save the souls of the Congolese people, he was going to need some help. But this backfired just a little bit. As it turns out, actual good Christian people tend to care a little bit when people are being murdered and children are having their hands cut off. But the ones that did speak out, very little people listened to. He discouraged them from going to the press about anything going on. The problem was Leopold had an answer for everything. If someone dared mention the violations occurring in the Congo, he simply explained that these were their customs, or that the brutality was exaggerated, or that Africans needed to be beaten in order to work due to the inherent laziness. If he was accused of mistreating the people of Congo, he redirected people to all the good he was doing. The public was so consumed by the propaganda and defended Leopold against anyone who had negative things to say about his work in the Congo without him even having to ask. But two missionaries in particular would call Leopold's character into question yet again. William Henry Shepard and William Morrison. The lives of these two men were very different in the beginning. Shepard was a black man who grew up working for white people. He had a background in ministry, but it wasn't really for him. He was still finding his way in the world. He had several jobs before deciding to head to the Congo as a missionary. Morrison was a white man born into a family that dreamed of him ministering. Fortunately, he lived in a household that was much more racially tolerant for the time. Perhaps this is why when he arrived in the Congo, despite being a white man from the South, he saw the people of Congo as human beings. Shepard started to fall in love with the people. He saw them as smart and charismatic, and they loved him back. While there, he learned the language and immersed himself in the culture of the Cuba Kingdom. The artifacts he collected while there he brought back to the United States, where they found a new home at the Hampton University Museum. He began to document the treatment that he was seeing at the hands of the force publique, even describing incidents of cannibalism. Morrison also immersed himself in the culture. He learned the Baluba language in order to translate the Bible and better understand the native people. He, like Shepard, documented the horrors he saw during his years in the Congo. He often wrote to Leopold II about what was going on. One portion of his letter to Leopold reads, quote, I can assure your majesty, nothing has ever given me greater pain than to be compelled to lose confidence in the government's real desire to do justice, unquote. Leopold read it and never replied. Writer Joseph Conrad found himself in the Congo around this same time. He left Poland when he was a teenager to explore the world. He joined the French Merchant Navy and from there, he went on several voyages. His travels led him to the Congo in 1890. But this trip wouldn't be like his others. What he saw during his time in Congo horrified him. His travels inspired him to write The Heart of Darkness based on what he saw. The most notable quote being the phrase, the horror 
the horror. He previously was in support of what was going on in the Congo, but after visiting, there was no way he could justify what was happening. In the heart of darkness, he writes, quote, they were dying slowly. It was very clear. They were not enemies. They were not criminals. They were nothing earthly now, nothing but black shadows of disease and starvation, lying confusedly in the greenish gloom, unquote. By now, the whispers about the happenings in the Congo were turning into chatter, and two men were going to deliver the final blows that would put an end to Leopold's possession of the Congo Free State, Edmund Morell and Roger Casement. Edmund Morell was a young professional who took his job very seriously. He was a shipping clerk for the Elder Dempster Company in Liverpool. If you look up what this guy looks like, you'll understand that anyone with the patience to maintain a mustache like this has some serious patience and attention to detail. He became concerned when he noticed that ships arrived from Congo with rubber and ivory, but they were leaving for Congo with guns, chains, and explosives. What would a state that's abolishing slavery and ending oppression need with those items? Furthermore, what kind of trade was going on here exactly? He deduced that slavery was still happening in the Congo and that Leopold was corrupt. When he brought it up to the higher-ups, they were slow to listen to his concerns. They had a business to run, and losing a high-paying client was not a part of that. But he wasn't going to let it go that easily. Instead, he began building a case. He researched all he could and began writing editorials about what was going on and spreading them all over to anyone who would listen. The subject matter he was discussing finally fell on the perfect set of ears. England decided to send down casemen to investigate these rumors. He made his way down to Congo and documented everything. Missionaries like William Shepard were happy to give their testimonies. He even took his own steamboat so as to avoid any authorities that may try and stop him. The following are two excerpts from the report. They are very graphic and disturbing. They are two Congolese people who Casement interviewed. The first reads, quote, While they were both standing outside, the soldiers came upon them and took them both. One of the soldiers said, We might keep them both. The little one is not bad looking, but the other said, No, we are not going to carry her all the way. We must kill the youngest girl. So they put a knife through the child's stomach and left the body lying there where they had killed it. Unquote. The second quote states, quote, When we were going on the way, they killed 10 children because they were very, very, very small. They killed them in the water. Then they killed a lot of people and they cut off their hands and put them into baskets and took them to the white man. He counted out the hands, 200 in all. They left the hands lying. Unquote. When he returned, his findings known as the Casement Report were consistent with what many others said years before. With his report, Casement, Morell, and other like-minded individuals established the Congo Reform Association in 1904 in order to try and make change. They wasted no time. By 1908, they had about 20,000 letters about Congo. They put their publications on the trains. They used several photos and displayed slideshows to the public with pictures of what was going on. Many of the pictures were provided by another missionary by the name of Alicia Harris. They did hundreds of speaking engagements. They traveled to America to rally support and encourage Americans to denounce Leopold II, seen as the country was one of the first to support him. Mark Twain was moved. He lobbied and wrote King Leopold's soliloquy. In addition to spreading awareness, Booker T. Washington agreed to help lobby on their behalf as well. They even had William Cadbury, you know, from Cadbury Chocolate, funding them. 
Leopold tried everything he could to stop this movement. He bribed. He tried to dig up dirt on other countries to make his doings look less bad. He tried to dig up dirt on morale. He hired people to provide statements conflicting with the reports floating around. They say a picture is worth 1,000 words, and Morel had dozens of photos that Leopold could not explain away. Nothing was working in his favor. To get America to stay on his side, he hired a man named Henry Kowalski, but Kowalski was a major liability. He was a lawyer, but he was incredibly shady. Leopold paid him millions of dollars for his help, but Kowalski's antics would prove to be a liability. When he was let go, he still knew too much. Leopold tried to pay him off, but Kowalski had something else in mind. He aired out the details of Leopold's plan to manipulate the U.S. people instead. There was no report he could submit, no findings, no angle he could spin to make this situation go away. It was over for Leopold. Imagine how bad you have to be for all other European nations at the time to agree that you are the worst of the worst. So in 1908, Belgian Parliament snatched control of the Congo Free State from Leopold II. To tell you the truth, I don't really think that he thought that his actions would come into question. Almost like he was untouchable. Once he had what he wanted, he treated himself to a lavish lifestyle. He was a sexual predator on top of everything else and frequently requested the company of girls as young as 14. He bought homes in France and showered his young mistress with shopping sprees. He earned himself the reputation of being the Builder King. He built and restored several structures that still exist today, such as the Duden Park, Antwerpen Central Railway Station, the Royal Galleries of Ostead, and last but not least, the Royal Museum for Central Africa, which at one point housed a human zoo for the Belgian people to visit and see how the Congolese lived. He was able to live exactly the life he wanted and created hell for the Congo Free State without even stepping foot into the heart of Africa. When he died, he died wealthy at the age of 74 and to this day has the longest range in Belgian history at 44 years. Just before passing, he married a woman whom he met when she was 16 and a sex worker just trying to make a living and he was 65. He left her and their children well off as well. At his funeral, the people of Belgium voiced their displeasure and booed him. They were disgusted and ashamed to even be associated with this man. In the end, it is estimated that nearly 10 million people died in the Congo Free State when Leopold II was in control. Many from murder and exhaustion, many more from disease and starvation spread by the officers following Leopold's orders. This number does not include the countless who were beaten, dismembered, raped, and tormented. And unfortunately, for the Congolese people, the death of Leopold II would not mark the end of their suffering and the exploitation of their people. It was just the beginning. Until next time. This podcast episode was researched and written by Jordan Howard, narrated and edited by Andre White. If you like the Redacted History podcast and what we do here, please consider leaving a rating and review and subscribe. You can go down to the description of this podcast episode and find resources and links to further educate yourself on what's going on right now in the Congo and how you can possibly donate if you're able.